I don't know about you, but I'm glad the official political season is behind us. Nothing has made me want to get rid of Facebook more. Uh, it has not been an enjoyable time of picture exchange. And uh, I'm also grateful to get away from the egomaniacal nature of presidential candidates um, and, and presidents-elect. Uh, I don't know that in my lifetime it's ever been clearer although it's probably true that it's always been this way, but it's never been clearer that most seek political office not for the good of the republic, but for their own glory. And when you see that exemplified in such living color in front of you, it's hard to remember, and it's certainly hard to believe when candidates for office use the appropriate verbiage to say they're going to serve the public but you can sort of tell that their campaign is really about their ego and about their own honor and glory. Now, there is a faux humility that gets associated with politicians. Uh, it's apparently part and parcel of being in politics, but I have to tell you today, honestly, to my shame, that many ministers of the gospel would have to confess that we have done, quote-unquote, the Lord's work for the same sense of accomplishment and personal glory as opposed to being a servant to the people. It'd be easy for me to point my finger at President-elect Trump for being egomaniacal when I'd have to equally confess to you that there have been seasons in my life where as a minister, I dared to use the office of pastor to make myself feel more important about who I was. And I hate to bust your bubble, but I'm not the only pastor who would have to confess that. See, I think it's our nature. I think it's our nature to say intellectually, oh, yeah, it's all for the glory of God. But deep down inside, we all know oftentimes some of the things we're accomplishing in our lives, some of the positions we're aspiring to, some of the ways we shove ourselves to the front of the line are really about us being first and us being the ones who be, are honored. Romans eleven thirty six says this, for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Glory is what drives many to achieve. Honor is what most human beings secretly long to have. And what is supposed to distinguish the Christ follower is that we are convinced, at least in mind, that all we have and all we are and all that we will ever be is only because of the love of God in Christ extended to us. Therefore, in light of this, we are properly prevented from boasting about what we've accomplished as if it is our work when we know down deep inside that it's what the Lord has done. Is your business going well? Is your career going well? Can you think back to a moment where you thought, you know what, if God doesn't show up here, this isn't going to go so well, and then he showed up. We always forget those crisis moments, don't we? And again, when I come back to the whole nature of our chapel project, it doesn't surprise me this much that we're going to come down to the wire and <laughs> God's going to come through because it's so important for our mental health to know that God is ultimately the one who does these things and not us. God is the one who moves. It is for his glory, for his honor. 
We conclude our teaching on prayer this week, difficult as, as it is to believe next Sunday is the first day of Advent. Um, amazing how fast the fall has passed and we're into Christmas season. When you come here next week, you'll have Christmas decorations here in the chapel. It's going to be really beautiful. Our final look at the Lord's Prayer is the last and closing words of Jesus' teaching, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Well, at least we think it's Jesus' teaching. Let me clarify, because if you've ever looked at the teaching of the Lord's Prayer in either of the Gospels, what you'll discover that either in Matthew's account or Luke's account is the words, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, generally aren't there, or there is a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts don't have this. And it is true. The earliest Greek manuscripts do not contain that addendum to the Lord's Prayer. You might ask why, and and particularly when you think about the fact that Roman Catholics do not use this addendum, but Protestants do. And Protestants historically have been the ones that have been bunched up pretty good about sticking close to Scripture. So what gives? See, Roman Catholics always say this refrain, but they separate it from the Lord's Prayer. Don't know how many of you were raised Catholic. Those of us who were have memorized this because you'd say the Lord's Prayer, lead us not in temptation and deliver us from evil. And then the priest would come in and he would insert something. And then you'd come back and you'd say, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory yours now and forever. And last week during worship, uh, my Catholic youth came back to me. And I thought, this is a really appropriate moment for me to insert what the priest used to say between the biblical Lord's Prayer and this scriptural addendum, if it be that, because what, and say it along with me if you are a, a recovering Catholic, because um, what, what we would say is, the priest would say, uh, deliver us, Lord, from every evil and grant us peace in our day. In your mercy, keep us free from sin and protect us from all anxiety so that in joyful hope, so that we wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this is what he would say, and then we would all respond the way Protestants pray the Lord's Prayer. Well, as is my, you know, whatever you call it, uh, penchant, uh, my leaning, I'd just as soon not fight over where this thing came from. Frankly, some scholars think in 1 Chronicles 29.11, you see the, the, the history of where this comes from, and that it probably was an addendum that people added to prayers regularly. Because in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and all the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So instead of really having a debate about whether or not this was a part of Jesus' teaching or whether or not uh, at, traditionally, they added this to it because it sounded like right and it was something that the church or the God's people always did. I would like to focus on the fact that Scripture makes the case very clear, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, that everything we do is about the glory of God. It is about Him. And that is where our greatest joy can be found. By praying, Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever, we are restating that God alone is the author of our lives and his purposes for our existence must be our purposes. We didn't create God to help us achieve our divine dreams for our glory. We were created by God to fulfill his purpose of reflecting his glory to others. 
Time for me to go all Presbyterian on you. I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 107 says, what doth the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And if you say it like the King's English, it actually helps. I'll have to get some of you with dramatics training to do it next time. The answer, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, teacheth us to take our encouragement and prayer from God only. And in our prayers to praise Him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to Him. And in our testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, amen. So let me give you this. In summary, from the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, we learn two things. In all of our living, we look to meaning and purpose in God alone. We look for meaning and purpose in all of our living in God alone. And then we also learn that in all of our doing we give the glory and honor to God alone. This isn't easy. It is easy to think that we are the center of the universe. Author Dan Stone says this in his book, The Rest of the Gospel, quote, it's easy to live as if we are the center of the universe. We would never say it or even think it consciously, but we can live as if God is here for us. That has come across in a lot of Christian so-called teaching. God is here to bless you. You ought to be rich. You ought to be prosperous. It's your due to be successful. It's your due to get ahead. God has to respond to your faith. God has obligated himself to bless you if you do the right things, all of which mean what? You are the center of the universe. To curtail our tendency, natural, broken humanity that we are, our natural tendency to take credit for God's glory. I have three observations today that I hope will remind us how foolish it is for human beings, especially the ones who claim to follow Jesus, to forget that He is the one to receive all the glory for who we are and what we do. So the first observation today is this. An adoption is initiated by the parent and not the child. Let's read the text so you know what I'm talking about. Verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Some of you were adopted, and some of you have adopted children. And I can say I'm fairly sure that none of us have ever heard of someone walking up to someone else and saying, will you please adopt me? Although I wouldn't be surprised if it's happened to Bill Gates or Oprah or some billionaire. I mean, that would make a lot of sense. Adoption is always initiated by the one, the parent, who wants to love the orphan. And this theme of our adoption runs through the scriptures. It's one of the reasons why the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus encourages us to make sure we're taking care of the orphans. It's because the metaphor, the picture of the gospel in that is so real and so important. Verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 1 highlight that before the world began, God had predetermined to adopt you. Long before you ever thought about seeking Him, or ever, ever thought about journeying to find truth, he had predestined that he was going to seek you out and adopt you into his family. Not by your decision, 
but by His glorious grace, which the passage says is the ultimate purpose for God's adopting us, that His grace would be seen. And this is how, in part, it is seen. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, the text says, in Him, and this is an important thing because in Christ is where all this takes place, and the phrase, in Him, takes place three times just in this section alone. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, just like we prayed, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. His purpose, God's will, was to unite you to Christ so that He would be the exalted head of the universe that you, I, and everything else in the world would be under His authority. Not only is this His purpose, that His glorious grace would be seen in us, but the actual expense associated with purchasing our lives, the redemption of which we're talking about in this passage, was paid by Him too. And that's all done so that at no time in our lives, particularly as we are walking with God, would we ever imagine that we are the ones responsible for rescuing ourselves, that we are the ones that pursued our adoption. I have a friend, and he and his wife have adopted a a daughter and a son from Asia. His daughter's from Korea, Catherine, and they uh, most more recently adopted a son from China. His name is Quan which always reminds me of Jerry Maguire, but that's neither here nor there. He, he wrote me from uh, Beijing when they traveled across the globe at great expense to them to bring their son home. And this is a funny story he told me. We ventured out uh, on our own in Beijing for supper today and got lost. And every time I stopped and asked the Chinese for direction, they just smiled at me and answered Catherine in Chinese. Catherine, the Korean daughter who's all of seven, just smiled at them and answered me in English. Then we'd all smile at each other and laugh. This happened four times before we figured out it's better to just guess than ask someone. (laughs) And I always thought that was pretty funny. Anyway, it has nothing to do with the message. I just thought it was a cute story from a buddy of mine. It seems that we would be less prone to try to rob the glory of God if we did not lose sight of His glorious grace, remembering that he adopted us at great expense and great cost. Not only did Jesus sacrifice his life to pay for the wrongdoings of our lives, our sins, but just the discomfort of leaving heaven to come to earth in and of itself is a sacrifice for somebody who really doesn't like not staying in nice hotels. I mean, you know, so when you think about the creature comforts that we enjoy and how we complain when we're uncomfortable, imagine living in a five-star resort your whole life and then having to go and live in the dingiest of places. Well, what Jesus did was exponentially more challenging. And at the end of that sacrificial move, he was crucified for our sins. We were pursued by God as any adoption is initiated by the parent and not the child, and this should humble us. Romans eight fifteen through 17 says, you did, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, 
Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He has adopted us. He has pursued us. And the glory for that goes to the Father and not the child. Here's my second observation from our text today. An inheritance honors the bestowing, not the bequeathed. An inheritance honors the one with the wealth who passes away and gives it to the child, not the spoiled child who got untold riches. Verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 1 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, and here we are again, to the praise of his glory. I find it sad when I come across someone whose parents are wealthy and they act as if they're superior because their mom and dad were really successful. Uh, We call that being born on third and pretending like you hit a triple. You know, you, you have no reason to boast. Your parents were successful. You aren't. The sense of entitlement, for instance, that you might find in a Hollywood heiress is not attractive. And yet you and I tend to do the same thing when we forget that all we are and all we do only succeeds because our Father in heaven has bestowed his blessing on us. You do know that he's not obligated to make a gifted person successful as the world sees it. The Apostle Paul, who had great successes in some parts of the, of the world as he ministered, also had tremendous, as the world sees them, failures. Would go to cities and get beat the crap out of and then run out of town. That doesn't get you, you know, a lot of, you know, positive reviews on first century Yelp. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it, the people didn't go, wow, he's great everywhere he went. But that wasn't his measure for success. For him, it was faithfulness to God. And he understood, as we do, that it's God's obligation to choose or not to choose what he wants to do when we invest our lives, our resources, or our time. And when we forget that he is the owner of all things and we're just the steward of his gifts, his glory is diminished. People stop seeing him because you and I keep stepping in front of him and going, look at what I've given, look at what I've done, look at what I've accomplished. And his goal is that he would be seen through us. The prophet Isaiah speaks of God's displeasure with this type of grandstanding on our part when he records the words of the Father in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my namesake, the Lord says, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you But not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. John Piper has this observation about this passage. I have found that for many people, these words come like six hammer blows 
to a man-centered way of looking at the world. For my namesake. For the sake of my praise. For my own sake. For my own sake. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. I know sometimes I'll hear teaching like this and I'll think, that makes God sound very egomaniacal, but it isn't. It's just proper. I mean, it makes sense. Think of the spoiled kid who never worked a day in his life that inherited $100 million. What right would that kid have to be boastful and arrogant and treat others poorly? They, They wouldn't have it at all. You'd look at that as would I and go, dude, you are not being grateful for all that you've been given. How strange would it be for me to take credit for the beautiful photography in Prism's Fellowship Hall? As you all know, our, our good buddy Brooks has taken these pictures. If you've not seen them around the church, they're in the restrooms, they're everywhere. Incredible photography. But what if I was to say something along these lines? You know, I'm the one who recruited Brooks to come to Pasadena. And I'm the one who approved the purchase of the frames for those pictures So we should all be pretty thankful that I exist here, that these beautiful pictures are on the wall. I mean, how silly would that be? How foolish would that be? Wouldn't you look at me and go, dude, you've got issues. But how different is that from us trying to get in front of what God is doing in our lives, all to satisfy some sense in us that we need to be valuable? Truth is, we're fortunate that we get to play any role in making Jesus look good. And I'm happy to play a small role in making Brooks look good. All of the blessings that we have, all of the gifts that we have have been given, all of the skills we have that have been cultivated, they're all given to us by God so that we could point others to him. We are the children of God, and we enjoy that status. But God's purpose in saving us was Ultimately, for his glory and his pleasure, I like the way Dan Stone says it. He says, quote, we are God's inheritance. We tend to focus on what we inherit in Christ, but the greater truth is that we are his inheritance. We belong to him. He finds us a treasure. This is the way it goes with inheritance. It honors the bestowing, not the bequeath. Here's my third observation this morning from Ephesians 1. A guarantee is dependent on the owner, not the customer. Verse 13 of Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And here we are again, to the praise of his glory. A guarantee is only as good as the one giving it. And a top-shelf guarantee is so wonderful because of the confidence you have in the one making the promise. We've been told that we are the children of God if Christ lives in us. If you have received the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit has sealed you, if He lives in your heart, regardless of your denominational background, regardless of your history with churches in general, if you have a relationship with God and the Holy Spirit lives in you, he has promised he will never leave you. Because he has sealed you, you can be sure that you are secure 
as his child for eternity. There is nothing you can do or not do that will jeopardize your eternal destiny. It has been guaranteed. Guaranteed. 1 John 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And unlike the shady bait-and-switch guarantees you get, like every time you buy an appliance and they want to tack on another $100 for their special warranty, and you think there's something that's going to be a loophole that's not going to be worth this $100, so I'll pass. Thank you very much. Unlike these, the Lord's guarantee is valid. It's valuable. It's priceless. It's legendary. We've made hymns about these things. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. It's right from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. See, the the writer of Lamentations has got this perspective right. Many of us would say that the real struggle of faith is waiting on God and trusting that it will be worth waiting instead of following us and following our nature into sin. Will Jesus be enough for our soul, we ask? Can we wait and resist like a thirsty soul walking through a desert of this world? We must trust God to lead us to His oasis full of life-giving water and not be so foolish as to follow the mirages, numerous though they may be, that will lead us further away from him and where he could be our portion. He needs us to trust him. But believing his promises, even the ones that are guaranteed, requires walking closely with him so we can believe his guarantees, so that we can trust him, so that we will actually instinctively know that a loving God, although he make us wait, will satiate our thirst with this life-giving water. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, quote, The Lord is our all-sufficient portion. God fills himself, and if God is all-sufficient in himself, he must be all-sufficient for us. It is not easy to satisfy man's desires. When he dreams that he is satisfied anon, he wakes to the perception that there is somewhat yet beyond. And straightway the horse leech in his heart cries, Give, give! That all that we can wish for is to be found in our divine portion so that we ask, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Well may we delight ourselves in the Lord who makes us to drink of the river of his pleasures. The beauty of the gospel, friends, is that the Father has permanently adopted you if you are His child, and therefore you are free to humbly come into His presence any time you have need, even if that need is for Him to revive your soul so that you can love Him more. And I would tell you, especially if your need is for Him to revive your soul so that you can love Him more. 
we no longer need to pretend that we really have greater affection for God than we do. Because Jesus has made us acceptable to the Father, because our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ, because we have been purchased, because he had from all eternity determined to adopt us, because he came and got us, we now are free to say to him, I don't love you like I should. And I'm going to need some help getting there. I'm going to need you to set me free from some vices that hold me like a death grip. I'm going to need you to give me a grace of self-discipline that will give me the ability to regularly set aside time for me to reflect on your goodness and your kindness. I'm going to need your help to grow in you. We no longer have to pretend. Friend, if you wait till you feel like seeking God to come to him, you will never come. And even when you do, if you think, eventually get turned, it's something that the Spirit of God has done in you to turn your soul. You see, it's securely resting in the grace of God as his beloved adopted child and co-heir with Christ that you will see this change of heart that you so desire. And that changed life will bring honor to Jesus Christ. And so it is entirely appropriate for us to conclude our prayers as many in the church have for centuries and apparently the Jewish people of God did for centuries before by simply saying, for thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, today we give you the glory for our lives. We're amazed when we look at the places where we could have found ourselves in real trouble or did find ourselves in real trouble and you rescued us. When we've even had successes, we want to take some time to reflect and thank you for how you made a way and you provided the miraculous thing we needed at the right moment and it is only appropriate that we would give you the praise and glory for that. We thank you that we get to play a part in making Jesus look good. And pray that we would be able to know the joy of simply being your children and that being enough for our souls. That we would find greater joy in giving away our lives than keeping it. We'd find greater joy in seeing our lives used for the honor of our Savior than we would the honor of men. Lord, during this communion time, would you take those who know that their hearts have been a long way away from you, even as your children, and give them confidence that you have made them holy in your sight through Jesus so that they would come to you. And then I pray that you'd minister to them by the power of your Holy Spirit as they boldly come before your throne crying out to you to create within them a hunger for you, a hunger for your word, a hunger for prayer, a hunger for righteousness. These are things that we need you to refuel in us, to rekindle our love for you, and not because we're trying to get you to love us, but because we want to know that you love us. We want to be at rest, and we want to be confident that you love us. So that we